Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner. And I'm Marianne Hitt, and this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. Today, Marianne and I are going to continue our series called How Then Shall We Live? Exploring the question, do our personal choices matter? And y'all, I am so excited because our topic for this episode is food, an area where I know we all think a lot about our personal choices as they relate to the planet. And I am beyond thrilled to have my very own sister, Emily Piney, on the show as our expert to talk about this with us. She uh, works at the University of Puget Sound as a professor. She is an expert on food and food policy. And we have such a fascinating conversation for you that is full of surprises. So get ready. But first, Anna Jane and I have some catching up to do. Anna Jane, how are you? Oh my gosh, I'm good. Forrest is on spring break and we're gardening away. Well, I am uh, I am so happy to hear. So you are my uh, you are my sister from another mother, but we have my sister from my same mother. <laughs> on the show today, Dr. Emily Piney. And we're going to talk about food and it's a big, you know, food and local food and organic food and vegetarian food and how all that relates to the planet and the climate is a topic I know lots of people feel strongly about. And I'm so excited to get to that. But before we do that, we had such a big response to our last episode about having kids in the era of climate change. And so Let's let's debrief a little bit about that first and and share that back with folks because I we really got got heard from a lot of people and um I think we should we should dive into some of those responses. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was so fascinating. It definitely elicited a lot of engagement and thinking from all sorts of people. And I'm stoked to share some of the like most interesting comments that I got. One was from this amazing person who's likewise a climate activist. He was actually one of my interns back in the day, one of my best interns. He pointed out that, you know, in a lot of ways right now is actually a really great time to have a kid. Like, you know, back in the day, even like 100, 150 years ago, the infant mortality rate was like 50%. And even if you did make it past the age of five, you still were likely to die young because of foodborne illnesses or lack of modern uh, medical equipment. And so, you know, and even though like climate change is like super scary and, and foreboding, in some ways, this is it's there's never been a better time to have and raise a child. And I thought that was a really, um, a really great point. And he he also pointed out that even though it feels really scary right now, like, you know, humans are super crazy creative, and we put a man on the moon. So who knows what's possible? That is great. I think that um, some of the, <clears throat> I guess, the fear of people uh, really being worried about having kids was for, for people who um, 
aren't thinking that way was a little shocking. Like, wow, what? Wait, really? People are afraid of having kids in the era of climate change, and it's a really real thing. So I, I love the, yeah, I love that lens on it too. That like we've overcome big problems before, yeah. and um, here's another one in front of us. Totally. And then <laughs> conversely, uh, I had another good friend reach out to me, and he, um, he mentioned that he actually had a vasectomy after the election. <laughs> um, That's a decisive uh, move. <laughs> it was uh, for him and. He said, honestly, it was kind of a relief. And now that it's done, I can stop deliberating and devote my time and attention to my career and creative agency. So another one that's underscores like how seriously people are taking this, right? This isn't just like an idle philosophical debate people are having with their partners. This is, this is like very real and very immediate. Yeah, definitely. And then I had one listener who's just the sweetest lady, you know, reached out and was just like, oh, like I'm in this age bracket and I'm struggling with this topic personally. And it's so scary to have Trump and his cronies and their depressing, to put it mildly, actions resonate in my uterus. <laughs> that was, I could really relate to that one. <laughs> it is depressing. Oh, well, on the kind of on similar lines, um, I had uh, someone reach out to me on social media who was a mom who said she listened to the episode and it brought her to tears because she is a uh, mom of small children or a small child and and really wrestles with this every day of kind of what kind of world if I brought my child into and what is their future going to be like. So, um, yeah, this is really this is really struck at people's core and I'm glad that we opened up that conversation and touched on yeah, it. Yeah, that was a consistent thing I heard was just like, I'm so glad that you broached this conversation because I do think it's something that people think about whether or not you are a parent or you're considering being a parent or you've decided not to be a parent, but we just don't talk about it enough. And, you know, I really, it, it made me think about my parents, you know, like when they, they being evangelicals really thought like, you know, that we were in the end times, you know, the coming apocalypse. And they still chose to have me and my four siblings. And I'm just, I'm so grateful that I had this opportunity and grateful that they weren't looking at this scenario, which to them is, you know, it was as real to them that we were entering into the apocalypse as it, as climate change is real to me, you know, and, and they still chose to have children. And I, I'm just really grateful for this gift of, of life and for my siblings' lives. And I wouldn't give it up for the world. And that was another interesting conversation I had with a, a dear friend who is weighing having children and really wants to. She was like, you know, even if I died tomorrow, I'd still be really grateful for this experience of life. And I think that um, that's something, you know, I think about. I don't know. I don't know if it's enough to to convince me to have kids, but. <laughs> and, and I would, I would also add to that for me, the completely magical metaphysical transformational experience of becoming a mom is something that just again, for me personally was single most profound experience of my entire life. You know, so if people are really want that experience, but are holding themselves back from it for fear of what the world will be, you know, I would just offer that, uh, our fear of what the world will be, um, I hope would not hold you back from that incredibly powerful, magical experience. And here we are together trying to, in fact, shape what the world's going to be. That's that's what this is all about. That's what I get up out of bed and do every day. And and so do millions of other people around the country. So, um, yeah. so yeah, it's there's still many good things coming and even more good things coming if we do our best yeah, work. Yeah, and there's, so. uh, even though this world is full of uh, hardship and it always in many ways has been, it's still, um, you know, there's still a lot of beauty and joy here. So 
one of the things that I came across since we last talked was this incredible article by a climate scientist, um, which was posted on On Being's website, which is this great you know podcast on spirituality that I follow and that I love. Um, but it was by this climate scientist named Dr. Kate Marvel, and she wrote, um, "We need courage, not hope." to face climate change. And it just really resonated with me. Um, so to, pref- to preface it, you know, she's a, a climate scientist and a public speaker and often gets asked to talk at events and, and conferences. And so this was kind of her, her thinking or her response um, to, you know, to this kind of general situation. But she said, climate change is bleak, the organizers of these events always say. Tell us a happy story. Give us hope. The problem is I don't have any. <laughs> The scale of climate change engulfs even the most fortunate. There is now no weather we haven't touched, no wilderness immune from our encroaching pressure. The world we once knew is never coming back. I have no hope that these changes can be reversed. We are inevitably sending our children to live on an unfamiliar planet. But the opposite of hope is not despair, it is grief. Even while resolving to limit the damage, we can mourn. And here, the sheer scale of the problem provides a perverse comfort. We are in this together. And we need courage, not hope. Grief, after all, is the cost of being alive. We are all fated to live lives shot through with sadness, and we are not less for it. Courage is the resolve to do well without the assurance of a happy ending. I love that. I love that. that. powerful? Like, I, Mm -hmm. for me, the past couple, I think really this past year and some change, like, just dealing with a lot of despair and, like, what are we getting ourselves into? (laughs) And, like, it was, like, I hope wasn't what got me out of bed in the morning, (laughs) you know? Like, because I didn't have a lot of hope that we were going to be able to stop this, you know, like, I think we could definitely make it less bad and we should do everything within our, our power to do that. But for me, the, the, the narratives around courage and, and whatever we can do in whatever big or small way to get out of bed and try to make this better is kind of, that's what resonates with me. And I loved how she, yeah, I love this line that we are all fated to live lives shot through with sadness and we are not less for it because courage is the resolve to do well without the assurance of a happy ending. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you and I both are very determined to turn this climate crisis around. And at at the same time, there is no guarantee of of how this is all going to turn out. And it's the courage is the resolve to do well. And there's, oh my God, there's so much good happening out there in the world. We're recording this around Easter time, which, um, you know, this is the time of like renewal and rebirth in nature and of this ancient human story that's been with us for thousands of years about the power of rebirth and resurrections and new, new possibilities being born out of death and chaos and, and loss. And I think if there was ever, ever a time and ever a season we needed you know, in this kind of t- tipping point in the climate crisis and the Trump crisis and all the other, you know, personal worldly crises we're all in the middle of, that Easter message uh, about resurrection and new things being born out of losses. Whew, I sure need it right now. And I really, I, I really think it's a, it's a universal human story and a universal human truth for a reason. You know, there's a reason that this story has been with us for thousands of years. Yeah, it's so. just so beautiful. And I love this quote by Pope John Paul, actually, that kind of like encapsulates it for me, but it's, do not abandon yourselves to despair. We are the Easter people and hallelujah is our song. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, and I'm glad we're, uh, we're delving into these 
personal choices um, around what does it all up add up to as we're we're wrestling with what all this means in our day-to-day lives in this series here. And I think coming to some surprising insights and and approaching these things in some surprising ways. And you're definitely going to find that in our conversation coming up with my sister, Dr. Emily Piney. Um, it's not just about uh, tofu and insisting everyone be a vegan. It's, as you might guess, more complicated and much more interesting than that. And we can't wait to share that conversation with you. And it was really fun for me, Anna Jane, to have the two of you uh on the podcast with me. That was just oh, such a treat. So, so good. I can't, I can't wait to share the interview. Uh, so let's go to it right after this. Hi, my name is Forrest and I'm from Corbin, Kentucky. Here is your dinner party climate fact for the day. The global food system from fertilizer manufacturing to food storage, transportation, and packaging is responsible for up to one-third of all human-caused greenhouse gas emissions. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I am so excited to welcome to the podcast my very own sister, Emily Piney. Welcome to No Place Like Home, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited to connect with Marianne's sister. Anna Jane is my like soul sister and Emily is my like actual like childhood uh, spent together in the mountains of Tennessee uh, playing in the dirt together, <laughs> sister. So this is very exciting for me to have us all together and to talk about a topic that Emily is actually an expert in. So um, Emily is a professor at the University of Puget Sound and her area of expertise, uh, one of them is food and food policy here in the U.S. and around the world. And when Anna Jane and I were thinking about who to invite on to the podcast to talk about something that is a very big personal choice people make about what they eat and how that affects the climate, um, I was so happy to have an excuse to have you on, Emily. We, um, Emily and I have joked that because I work on uh, shifting the nation to clean energy and Emily works on food, that between the two of us, we have uh, the two biggest threats facing our planet covered, um, energy and food and agriculture. So you're in good hands, friends, tiny um, <laughs> sisters. So just as a way to start us off, Emily, could you just uh, touch on that just at the high level for people who may not? know what a big contributor uh, food and agriculture are to the fate of our planet? Just can you put that in some context for us? Why is it a big deal? Why do you study it? Absolutely. So agriculture from the extremely very, very intimate personal level of health and ethics to the very, very big level of international trade and transnational corporations, food touches every single part of our lives and the global political economy. And in terms of impact on the environment, obviously, Agriculture is a major, major, major contributor to climate change. Many people probably know that livestock and synthetic fertilizers and pesticides and tractors and all of those kind of 
elements of the large-scale food system all have environmental impacts, particularly in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and other things that we may think less about, like soil compaction and the ability of the actual earth to sequester carbon and those kinds of issues. International trade, right? We ship live animals all around the world. We ship frozen blueberries and very, very fragile produce and refrigerated ocean liners all around the world. So the transportation aspect of growing food is a really big contributor to to the to climate change. Deforestation is a huge issue. Um, you know, in the United States, we deforested most of our farmland hundreds of years ago, but there are parts of the world where deforestation is still actively occurring. And that is obviously also a really big contributor to climate change. So pretty much every aspect of producing food has some impact on the environment at some level. That's really one of the main reasons why I chose to study this this subject. I am just so excited to connect with you and talk about food. I've been like a foodie since I was nine. I was one of those weird kids who would like watch cooking shows. My mom thought there was something wrong with me. <laughs> and I actually <laughs> spent all day gardening. Today we're putting in our big veggie garden. We have a huge herb garden. We have a bunch of fruit trees. And it's like both like a part of my like self-care and mental health ritual, but also just a way that in my own small way, I can, you know, lessen my carbon footprint by by eating more locally and organically. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm super, super stoked to, to connect with you. Um, and one thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is just like how much food is a part of our identity and like our stories and how talking about food in the context of, of climate impacts can be really scary for people. Like, for example, I, you know, I, I live down on the Gulf Coast of Alabama, which is where my mom's side of the family is from. We live right on the water. And so my uh, grandfather used to be a huge fisherman where he would go out and go shrimping and crabbing and bass fishing and floundering. And then he would come home and my grandmother would make up these huge seafood feasts for our family. And I became a vegetarian when I was like 16. And the one thing that I like, couldn't like give up or I just missed too much was jambalaya, which is this amazing like Cajun seafood meal. And so I've been perfecting like a vegetarian jambalaya for 20 years now <laughs> at this point, but it's, it's become a part of my identity. You know, it's like what people ask me to make when I go to dinner parties. <laughs> and I'm curious, like in your line of work, how, you know, how you talk about these big issues and all the impacts they have on the world and, and also wrestle with the fact that it's such a like personal and integral part of people's stories. That is a really, really excellent question because I, I, you totally hit the nail on the head. I mean, food is at once a major political flashpoint and it's incredibly politically charged at the sort of global and national level, but it's also incredibly personal. You know, when I teach my classes about this, you know, a lot of college students that I teach either have been thinking about this for a really long time and, you know, already have a lot of anxiety about deciding what to eat or they haven't really thought about it and going through them, you know, going through the process of learning about the food system leaves them with this sense of like, how do I if when I walk into the grocery store, how do I decide like what is okay to eat, right? That is oftentimes that you know, kind of what they're left with at the end of the class is tell me what it's okay for me to eat because it seems like everything has a dark side. Um, and what I tell them is that, you know what, everything does have a dark side and there's no way around that. And there is no perfect diet that is going to be carbon neutral or that is going to be perfectly ethical or is that, or that is going to be perfectly anything. Right. And so I think it's about navigating your own personal values and, you know, allowing yourself to stay connected to parts of your culture that are important to you in that way. 
So I was actually listening to your your previous podcast on this theme, and one of the things that you all brought up was this idea of um, you know policing other people's personal choices, and that's something that comes up a lot when we're talking about food, right? Because a lot of people are really committed to a particular eating pattern or a particular kind of diet. There's a lot of values that are tied up with how people decide to eat. And the complication that I see with that sometimes is exactly what you're getting at, Anna Jane, which is, you know, if you are trying to tell other people how to eat, then you're interfering with their culture. You're sort of passing judgment on something that's incredibly intimate and incredibly personal and incredibly tied up with family and home place and history and all of that kind of stuff. And so, you know, that's why I think it really is a personal journey. And we all kind of have to figure out how to find the middle ground between those the things that are personally important to us and the impact that we want to make on the world. And I know that that is a really messy answer and it's maybe not very satisfying, but that's always where I come down on that issue. I will have a true confession. I'm not a vegetarian. So please direct your angry vegetarian uh, <laughs> tweets to at NPLH podcast and uh, I will do my penance. But part of that for me has been, uh, you know, has been about, you know, having a husband who started hunting and, feeling like the kind of environmental impact of a deer that someone has hunted is maybe uh, comparing that to some tofu or almonds driven all the way from California versus a locally hunted deer seemed to me to like suddenly get complicated. And so I started making some different choices. And now I will admit that I have now backslid and sometimes just eat garbage. But with that said, uh, you know, people are trying to make the best personal choices. And I'm just curious about what what are your choices? What do you, what guides your decisions about what you eat as someone who's an expert? In this? <laughs> well, that's a really good, I mean, that's something that my students always end up asking me too, is, well, how do you decide what to eat and what do you eat? And I am also not a vegetarian and I make very weirdly specific judgment calls about weirdly specific items. And I, there, I don't have sort of a single rule that I live by, but just as one example, I don't, I don't even always buy organic food, right? Because I, because of how much I know about how different organic things are produced, there are certain things that to me seem worth the extra money and certain things that just don't seem worth it, right? So one of the things that I always try to buy organic as much as I can is dairy. And that's partly because of the downstream impacts of organic dairy production, right? If you are buying organic milk, you're also supporting some, in most cases, hopefully, you're supporting better animal welfare. You're also supporting all of those organic grain farmers that are supplying those dairies with feed. So there's a, to me, there's a bigger environmental impact as opposed to buying a piece of produce organic that doesn't actually get sprayed with that much pesticide in the first place, right? So to me, partly the way that I make choices is by educating myself about all of these different issues. But I also know that that's not a realistic expectation for the everyday consumer, right? It's much easier for the everyday consumer to say, I'm going to be a vegan or I'm going to buy all organic food as a way to try to sort of take out some of that, you know, time and effort that's required to understand the nuance of strawberries versus bananas or whatever, right? Which is like realistically not something that people, we can expect people to to get into the weeds about. You know, I try to buy local food as much as possible, but as with local, as with organic, as with vegan, none of these things are a silver bullet, right? None of these things are 
are without complication and contradiction. And I think that that's something that's really important to remember when you're when you are beating yourself up about eating McDonald's hamburger, right? It's also important to remember that organic and vegan diets are not disconnected from the conventional food system, right? If you're eating a block of organic tofu, those soybeans were probably fertilized with chicken manure that came from a horrific conventional egg production facility that was then dried and put on a tractor trailer truck and transported hundreds of miles away to the organic farm that's growing your soybeans. Mm. So like seeing those connections, I think really challenges some of the assumptions that people have about organic food and about vegan diets and all of that kind of stuff. Being triggered over here. It's okay, Anna Jane, it's okay. (laughs) The resident vegetarian. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing. So, So on the one hand, I think it's important to understand how all of these systems are connected to each other, right? And like I said, none of it's a silver bullet. On the other hand, you know, so does that mean throw up your hands and eat McDonald's every day and say, well, nothing that I do is ever going to make a difference and, you know, go down that that road? And I, I, I don't think that that is sort of reflective of reality either, because yes, maybe the organic farm is being fertilized with chicken manure from a conventional chicken farm hundreds of miles away, but you're also saving hundreds of thousands of pounds of pesticides from going into the soil. And that's where we get back to looking at it at the system level and understanding that the food system is political and that there are ways that we can intervene at the policy level to to shift some of these patterns. Yeah. So before we jump into the political and systematic piece, which I'm very fascinated about, I just, as the resident vegetarian, (laughs) want to dive a little bit deeper into this because it is like, I mean, it's so funny that you referenced chicken farms as well. Like I grew up in a town, um, Wilkesboro, North Carolina, that has a big Tyson chicken plant and also just like a ton of, of chicken facilities that are, you know, kind of these massive factory farm situations. And I remember the day I decided to become a vegetarian, I was, it was before I cared anything about the environment. Like actually for me, it was all about just being generally grossed out and also animal rights. But I was stuck behind one of those big chicken track, you know, like tractor trailers with all the chickens stuck in them. And I was eating a chicken sandwich from like McDonald's or something. And I just like the disconnect for me was like too much. (laughs) And I just like set it aside and was like, no more. And I'm curious, like, especially around, because I've read a lot of stuff around meat and meat protection and the fact that even just eating less meat is like a significant way to decrease your climate impact. And if we did that all collectively, it would, um, or even just eating the meat that's like on the health guidelines, like Americans eat so much meat that we, you know, it's bad for our health and it's bad for the environment. So I'd love to hear you speak to, to that, like kind of like the way that meat production does impact the climate. Absolutely, right? The data is absolutely incontrovertible that meat production is a major, major greenhouse gas contributor. Generally speaking, it's for a number of reasons, and I don't have to go super into the weeds, but part of it is that we feed cows corn, which they are not evolved to digest. And so when they eat corn, they release much more methane gas through their farts than they do if they're eating grass, right? Another part of it is the fact that we raise animals in in these concentrated animal feeding operations, these big CAFOs, where the waste that they produce is not being returned to sort of the Earth's nutrient cycle. It's being, it has to be treated as hazardous waste. Plus the fact that, you know, a lot of the cropland that we use to grow 
crops, those crops could be going to feed humans, but they're going to feed animals instead, right? And so the sort of calorie density and all of that kind of stuff, right? So there are lots and lots of ways in which meat consumption does contribute negatively to, to climate change. On the other hand, part of the reason that I'm not a vegetarian is I also feel like animals are a really important part of the food system. Part of that is this nutrient cycle, right? So I think one of the biggest sort of broken systems that we have on the planet is the nutrient cycle. So if you think about a forest, right, it's a closed loop. A plant grows, an animal eats the fruit, the animal poops on the forest floor, the plant dies, the animal dies, all of that breaks down and goes back into the soil as new nutrients, right? But our industrial food system has broken that nutrient cycle, right? So we have we have synthetic fertilizers that are produced from fossil fuels, right? Oil and petroleum are used to create ammonium nitrate that is used as a fertilizer that goes into the soil, right? So we're sort of using a non-renewable resource for our fertility. And then all of the waste that's produced, all of the dead animals, all of the manure, all of the crop residues are, it's waste. It's not being recycled back into the soil to rebuild the soil. And so if you think about, if you completely eliminated animals from the food system, where would you get your fertility? You would probably get it from petroleum, unfortunately. And so in that way, I think we absolutely are producing way more animal fertility. If you want to think, I like to think about poop in terms of fertility rather than waste. So we're producing way more animal fertility than we have anywhere to put it. That is definitely an issue. And I think we could absolutely stand to eat a lot less meat. And I think we could, it would also be a really important change to change the way that we raise animals. On the other hand, meat is also incredibly nutrient dense. It's a really good way to get a lot of amino acids, fatty acids, vitamins. Animal products are really, really good for nutrition. And so for folks who don't have access to high quality organic tofu, eating meat is actually nutritionally a really good option for them. And do we want to price those people out of the ability to access that nutritious food, right? So those are the kind of complications that I see but eating fewer animal products and eating less meat, I think, is something that would be really beneficial in general. But it's complicated. <laughs> I want to, uh, before we wrap up here, I want to pull the lens back from these personal choices because I think part of the reason we're doing this series is that you can make all the personal choices that feel right to you and yet they all... Um, they only all add up to so much, right? Like I can put solar panels on my house. I can get an electric vehicle. I can eat low on the food chain and, and still, you know, the, the planet is burning. And so, um, in my work at the beyond coal campaign, but part of what I'm trying to do is, you know, make it. So when you flip on the light switch, that power is coming from solar energy and whatever choice you make about however long you leave your lights on the, impact of your those personal choices is a lot less. So I would love, um, Emily, if you could leave us with some thoughts ab about what are some of those upstream policy changes that we could be making, some things we could be doing differently, you know, whether this is something someone can call their senator about or not. What are some of those more upstream systemic changes that we could be making that would make a big difference for the climate? At the end of the day, I think that is the most important question. Um, it's really easy to think that our consumer choices are going to make a huge difference. And again, I think it's really important to recognize that our consumer choices do make a difference, right? I mean, like I said, every gallon of organic milk that's bought, it means fewer pesticides going into the soil. On the other hand, 
um, I think particularly when it comes to food, people often think, you know, well, I eat organic and so I've done my part or I'm a vegan and so I've done my part and I'm doing everything I can to contribute to a sustainable food system and it stops there, right? And something that you said, Marianne, in the your podcast about having children that really struck me was this idea that focusing on these personal choices kind of takes energy away from political activism or it can some sort of sap energy from doing that, you know, the political work. And I think that in food activism in particular, that is something that happens. And one of the pitfalls of that, of course, is, you know, this idea of voting with our fork and the way that that sort of distorts the political conversation, right? Because if you're focusing on consumer activism and you're voting with your fork or you're voting with your dollar realistically, right? Those who have more dollars have more votes. A colleague of mine that I've taught these issues with in the past at Whitman College always says, eat whatever you want and then pay attention to how your representatives vote on the farm bill. And I really think that, you know, this is sort of, I could get up on a soapbox on this in my classes, but the farm bill is not a sexy piece of legislation. You know, nobody, nobody is marching on Washington about the farm bill. No one is really sort of raising their voice about how we're spending government money to support agriculture in this country. And it's incredibly important, not just for farmers, but for what kinds of food are we subsidizing? Why are we subsidizing corn and soybeans and we're not subsidizing fruits and vegetables? The farm bill has an incredible amount of funding for rural development, for broadband in rural areas, and all of these other kinds of issues that are related to the health of rural communities. So I try to leave my students with, if there's one thing I want them to walk out of the class with, it's that it's that paying attention to agricultural policy is incredibly important. And Farm Bill comes up for, you know, renegotiation every five or six years, depending. And there are some politicians out there who are trying to radically re-envision the Farm Bill in ways that are really inspiring. And there are those kinds of, you know, very radical political changes that we could talk about, there are, you know, sort of more incremental changes that we could talk about at the federal level. But there's also a lot that goes on in your local community politically that makes it more or less possible for people who want to grow food in urban areas to have access to land. There's a whole network of regulations that shape how we get our food, how much it costs, how accessible it is. And I think that, you know, Paying attention to those zoning laws around protecting agricultural land is a hugely important issue. But because those issues are oftentimes happening in rural areas kind of outside the public eye, they just don't get the same kind of political attention that, you know, a lot of other hot button issues get. And I really think that that that's a, a crucially important thing that that folks need to start paying more attention to. So it's like fascinating, like as an activist, I've thought a lot about beyond coal and different climate campaigns and all these different ways to get in politically involved in that. But I haven't gotten as involved in the political element of, of food activism. And I'm just curious for like someone who is passionate about these issues, like where's an easy entryway? Like, you know, um, like digesting the farm bill is a big task. Like what's what's something I could just uh, kind of just like bring me in um you know, to kind of introduce me to the world of, of food and, and political activism? Yeah, that's a really good question. And one of the things, I mean, I, I'm obviously most familiar with um, things that are happening in my community, but there are a lot of um, urban communities around the country that have that are fighting battles around urban farming and finding access to land, finding access to water, 
those kinds of issues. There are um, a lot of my community in Tacoma, Washington, we have a really robust um, nonprofit sort of network around local food access. Um, and one of the things that I think that you mentioned, Anna Jane, at the very beginning of this podcast is gardening, right? One of the things that I, that I, the two things I tell my students is pay attention to the farm bill and grow something. Everybody can grow something. Everybody can grow a little bit of their own food. And it may not see, feel like a political act, but in the end it is, right? Because every square inch of ground that we can turn from a parking strip into a vegetable garden. And so that's, that's one thing. But I also think there are so many local programs around, for example, in Tacoma, there's, uh, we have a gleaning project where people can register. If you have a plum tree or an apple tree in your backyard and you couldn't possibly ever use all of the plums or apples that it produces at one time, you can register that tree and volunteers will come and harvest the excess produce and they'll donate, to, donate it to the local food bank. Another, I think, really accessible way to get involved in food activism is, is addressing food waste. A third of the food that is produced in this country is wasted. The national level organizations that I think are doing some of the best work are the National Family Farm Coalition is a really amazing organization that is dedicated to um, protecting small family farms. There's a, a group called Civil Eats that is a website and a blog, and they publish really, really amazing journalism and research on food issues. And then I would also plug the Food First organization in California. They've been doing this stuff for a really long time and they're, they're pretty amazing as well. Well, we will put all of those in our show notes so people can find them. And Anna Jane, isn't my sister the coolest? Oh my gosh, I could sit and talk to her all day. This stuff is so fascinating. She, and she's brilliant on like so many other things. This is like the tip of the iceberg of her brilliance. So, well, when when I whenever I have a chance to connect with my amazing and brilliant sister in in some sort of professional capacity, it's always such a treat. I mean, I love you know hanging out and going swimming in the river, obviously, but I also really love being able to sort of mind meld on some of these big questions about sustainability in the planet. So this has been a huge, huge treat for me. I really appreciate you guys having me on. All right, we love you. All right, that just about does it for us. Marianne and I want to thank y'all so much for listening. And thanks to the great band River Wireless for our theme music and to our sponsor, the Sierra Club. This episode was produced by podcaster master Zach Mack, who is a proud vegetarian and loves to cook, but he has been working some crazy hours and does not really have time these days to cook up some delicious local organic veggie meals. So in the meantime, he highly recommends Trader Joe's lentil soup. <laughs> we should get a sip out of that. <laughs> Subscribe to us on iTunes and please also leave us a review on iTunes. That really helps us get the word out. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and we post all of our episodes and updates. And we love to chat with you all on our Twitter page, which is at NPLH Podcast. So be sure to follow us there and share your thoughts on this episode. And remember, there's no place like home. <laughs>